0: Good morning. It's a privilege to pinch hit for Jeff for a week. So here we go. Many of us have probably hung around church long enough to know that uh, the big theme, the essence, if you will, of what we're supposed to get about God and a relationship with him is this idea of love him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And I wanted to let you know this morning, I love my literal neighbor. I live on a cul-de-sac, and I have a neighbor next door to us to our left who, he's a handyman, and I am not. So I love him, because even this past week, I had a toilet tank that wasn't doing what it was supposed to do, and he came over and made the toilet tank work. He's good. Now, he's also interesting. He keeps things on the cul de sac uh, nice and never know what's coming next. He's a Greek man. He came here from Greece, 50 bucks in his pocket years ago, landed in New Jersey, and made away. And now he's ended up in Mason, Ohio, and we've been neighbors for nearly 15 years. And the interesting part of him, think of Big Fat Greek Wedding. Have you seen that one? He's the, he's the dad. He's Gus, yes. And one day I came out of my house, and one of his interesting features became on display. It was early in the morning, as would be my custom. I have a lot of early meetings, and morning time is breaking out the front door, and I heard this sound. It went <laughs> Man, it's usually quiet when I walk out first that front door, and it startled me. And I, I heard it again, <clears throat> and after that sound a second time, I heard a louder sound that went like this. My neighbor had a BB gun punny, pointing out the front door of his house, and he was shooting squirrels, <laughs> and they were falling down the tree. <laughs> to their death on the ground. You might ask, why does your neighbor do that? Is that allowed in a subdivision? Probably not. He does it anyway. But he has fruit trees on his property. He's got a peach tree. He's got a lemon tree. And he's got a fig tree from his native land. And he hates those squirrels getting after his fruit. And so he takes care of them. And this morning, we're going to look at a fruit tree story. Jesus gives a fruit tree story, even about figs. And it teaches us about the theme that we're in, holiness, this morning. The context of this is we're going to be in Luke 13. But you have to look at Luke 12 before you get to Luke 13 and wonder... Well what what are we stepping into here? Well what we're stepping into is Jesus has been teaching his followers, most of them at this time Jews, about a theme that he wants to get across called readiness. Being prepared for an evaluation because he senses they're not ready. They think they are, he knows they're not. And so that's what we're stepping into and and what we're going to see is he's going to do what's very common to Jesus. He's going to state a reality and a truth, and then he's going to throw alongside of it. And that's what this word means, a parable. It means to toss alongside or throw alongside to give the reality and truth validity and to give it an amplification so that there could be understanding. So let's look at Luke 13, chapter, or verses 1 to 5. Says, now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell, And killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So he's using these current events of the day, as Jesus is so adept at doing, two catastrophes, sudden instances of calamity coming on groups of people. The first caused by a human, Pilate. And this is the same guy that eventually pronounces the death sentence on Jesus. And he uses his power at times to just do inventive, mean things. And he's just done one. He's taken people sacrificing to God and killed them. Right in the midst of their blood sacrifice, he mixed their blood. And the people are aware of this. And then Jesus tosses in another one and says, yeah, how about the 18 folks recently where the towers fell and they lost their lives? And he rhetorically wants to get the message across by asking these questions. Do you suppose they're worse in terms of their sin than everybody else? And his answer is no, because he's wanting to let them know you cannot judge people's sins by their life's calamity and suffering. There's not this perfect cause and effect relationship. Cause and effect is a reality in our world. But he's teaching them to be careful about making that association in regard to people's sin and what happens in terms of their life, even their death. It's not always so clear and clean. And these are Jewish people, as I said, that he's talking to. And, And he's trying to help them understand that you too, even as God's chosen people, could face a sudden and horrid reality unless you repent, which we'll get to later on in this sermon in terms of what does that mean. And then after that, he throws along this parable. So let's see it. He says, and he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. The title of the message that you see in your bulletin is, With Privilege Comes Responsibility. This is an aspect of the holiness that Jeff's been teaching us on on this series. That there is a privilege of being set apart by God for God. And as people in Jesus, that is what we are. We are made holy by God. But there's an opportunity... Actually, an expectation that God has that our practice would live up to our position. And that's what we're going to look at around the theme or outline of three ideas. Privilege, production, and patience. First, privilege. You see, these people that he's talking to, as I told you, they're God's chosen people, right? The Israelites, the Jews, And they've had this idea for a long, long time. And it's true. They are God's chosen people. It's very clear. He wanted to get his message of love and forgiveness in all of mankind spoken to through these people who had been chosen first through Abraham and then had become a nation. However, with that privilege, they had not always lived up to it. And so prophets and now Jesus have come to them to say there will be an evaluation on how you're doing with your privilege. You're being set apart. In fact, we can go back in the Old Testament look at a passage from Isaiah. I think they would have had this passage in mind as Jesus was teaching, being familiar with their Old Testament scripture. It says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant, thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. You see, very quickly, their hearts and minds would have went to this passage that they knew from an Old Testament prophet as Jesus taught this parable. In fact, they would have recently been reminded by the one who was called the the forerunner to Jesus, John the Baptist, He had just spoken this before Jesus started his public ministry. Look here in John 3. John the Baptist says, Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see what John's doing here? He's saying you have a tendency to say to yourself, hey, our father is Abraham. Free pass. I've got a trump card. I'm in the bloodline. I've got a security blanket. I'm God's chosen people. I'm in the right nationality. And even as you look back to the two stories that led into this teaching, as they encountered those current events and talked about them, they would have been thinking, surely tragic headlines like these won't come our way. But Jesus is saying, no, your, your immunity to evaluation is something you're being deceived by. And falsely depending upon. And we are like those people. Since we are now called, like Israel has been, his chosen people. If you're in Christ, have a relationship with him. You've been set apart. You've been made holy. The book of Colossians says you've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his son. Even the passage talks about the fact that this fig tree had been planted In his vineyard, it wasn't natural for a fig tree to be in a vineyard. It had to be taken and planted in that kind of soil where normally grapes and vines were producing. And Jesus is trying to bring that imagery to us and say, Do you realize how special it is that I chose you to be a follower of mine? To have the benefit of relationship with my son Jesus? But holiness would say your practice should match your position and your production should correspond to your privilege. So let's look at production. In fact, let's tangibly experience production. If you took a fig at Newton on your way in today, it's now your time to experience fruit. So open it up if you have it. This is not Holy Communion. I'm not starting a new tradition here at Grace Chapel. But bite into that. Uh, uh. Now, if you're like me, you would say, hey, Ron, could you find a Bible passage on Reese's peanut butter cups? You know, that that would actually be more enjoyable. Fig Newton wouldn't be what I'd normally pick off the shelf. But I wanted to give you a taste of the fruit, the sensation of the, the joy, the value, the result that we're supposed to get from a product doing what it's supposed to do. I went to my neighbor's house last night in the backyard where the fig tree is and I cut off a fig too. That's what a fig looks like. Looks like almost a mini Granny Smith apple. If you tear it apart like I did, it's got a kind of a watermelon color fruit inside. Now I was careful though, since I know he has a gun. He wasn't home when I went to get this. But we see in this passage that Fruit is a right and reasonable expectation from God and Jesus toward the people that he's put into a privileged position. You see, it's not a, oh, I could follow the Holy Spirit who's nudging me this direction or the prompting I'm feel to do this or by faith act in this way or to put forth this quality of love and kindness toward this person. Ah, uh, I'll think about my option whether I'm going to do it or not. See, that's not Christian living as God designed it. He would want us to say, no, it's actually more of a should than a could. You should be producing this fruit in light of where I placed you. And I know for myself, the kind of talk that I like to have with God, because I know he means good by it, is when he points out to me that, Ron, you're operating more on could than should. Are you the master or am I the master in terms of the leading and the nudges I'm bringing to your life and how you're putting forth fruit in that life? There's biblical support for this idea of fruit, and I think Jesus clearly talks about it along with Paul in two separate passages. Let's look first at what I would call the, the method of our fruit, it comes from John 15. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. See, the idea here of abiding, abiding means to stay connected, to attach firmly and fixed. And he uses the same type of imagery from nature and things to grow to help us see that the method of bearing fruit is not us grunting and working harder and being more religious. And if you hear this sermon today and you hear a guy saying, yeah, do more, be more religious, be more righteous, you're missing it. What I'm saying is get connected to Jesus. Be in relationship in a deep and meaningful way, and the fruit that is expected, that should be there, will come. It's the mystery of relationship with Him. He's the sap, He's the vine. Who of us have ever gone out to a fruit tree and watched a branch grunting to kick that apple off its branch? You've never seen that. It abides in the life giving vine. And the roots that have the nutrients and resources for it to come about. That's the method. It's with Jesus more than it's for Jesus. Let's look at the material of the fruit. We find this in Galatians 5. Paul wrote, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, And self control. Against such things, there is no law. These nine qualities, these are the things that should overflow out of one's life as fruit when they're tucked in, connected, staying with, abiding with Jesus. And take notice here if you look at the passage in your Bible or here on the screen, you'll see it doesn't say, but the fruits, plural, of the Spirit are these nine things. It's one fruit with all of these dimensions that all come together and work together and overlap to form a life of fruitfulness. Too often I've noticed in Christian circles that I've been in that we call these the fruits of the spirit, almost with the idea of, well, you know, I got seven out of eight. I'm doing good on peace, but patience. (laughs) I don't even want to pray for that because who knows what God will do then. No, 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 God sees them as one whole working together and wants us to move in our practice of holiness more and more to where it's a comprehensive whole of all of these working together so that we shine the light of Christ in such a way that people see this good fruit and this good work and they're attracted and that in itself becomes a fruit. Because those people are planted in other places where they can bear fruit and change lives and be a, God, be a part of God's great plan to change lives in all kinds of communities with all kinds of people in all places of the world. Another dimension of fruitfulness is this idea of reproduction, which will happen if we use the method and center in on the material. But now we come to the place of this idea of production where we have to talk about the idea that's in all these passages that we read so far. What happens when there's no fruit? And you can't get past the idea of, well, there's judgment and consequence. And I know that's not a vogue topic in today's world, the idea of judgment. Judgment in many of people's vernacular, is an inherent bad thing or concept. And I want to be here to hear to say today, I disagree. If you just think about your everyday life, if you did not use judgment, you would be in a bad place. Judgment is a good thing, applied in the right way, in the right place. So I want to look at it, because we can't avoid the cut down, remove, throw away dimensions of the passages we just looked at in regard to judgment and consequence. So I want to take four angles on judgment. First angle is when, when, when is God applying his judgment? Well, it's right here in the passage in verse six. It says that he regularly came year after year for three years to this tree to see if there was fruit on it. So we can surmise from that. God is regular in his, Wanting to come do evaluation and inventory on in our life. And please hear this it's a good process because he's not coming with condemnation in his being and heart. His idea is to, for our good, show us where there's not fruit and where there is fruit and what can be done about it. It's regular, his judgment. It's not just saved up for one time in the distant future, it's regular. A second angle would be judgment in regard to why. Why does he judge? Well, as I just said, it's, it's inspection for good. Whatever you are, say a tree, a fig tree, you should produce figs. And so finding out if there's an accurate dimension of fruit coming from who you are is a good process, just like it would be for us as Christians, Seeing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in our life is actually a good inspection for both us to be aware and deal in reality, but for God in terms of he being honored and glorified through our lives. It's a chance for him not only to set us apart, which we are if we're in Christ, but also to set us right if we've gotten off course in terms of our practice Matching with our position. Let's see it in this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. He says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you indeed fail the test? It's a sobering, punch in the gut passage. It's saying, I don't want you to be deceived by playing a mamby-pamby American Christianity, if I could say it that way. If you get lulled asleep into thinking, well, if I go to church regularly, if I'm generally a pretty nice person, and I'm on this side of Hitler, then I'm good. And he's saying, no. I want you to examine a little deeper than that. I want you to test yourself more than that so you can prove yourself out that, yeah, I am in Christ. Because I sense the stir- stirrings, the nudgings. I do long for fruit. I am depending on God to bring it through in my life. It's for our good to examine ourselves and to let and invite Him in for the examination. A third angle. Who? Who who are we talking about here in terms of this judgment? Well, I want to call out three audiences because I think they're all in view here. The first audience, the main audience in the context of this passage is the Jewish people. Israel, the ones that he called his delight vine, the ones he said, how much more could I do than to place you in this position? They're the main audience in this context because Jesus is trying to, wake them up to the reality of that, hey, a sudden and horrid experience is coming your way if you do not repent. And that particular instance, I think, in this context is the fact, a historical fact, that Jerusalem and the temple was demolished in A.D. 70. That's on the horizon as he's teaching. It's going to look very much like this tower that fell down and these people That were killed amidst their sacrifice. And he's warning them about that. That they as God's chosen people should be careful with their privilege and not presume upon it. But it's also talking to a second audience. And that would be those who are not in Christ. Who don't have a genuine sincere faith placed in Jesus. As the one who can care for the penalty of their sin. And open a way to them for an abundant life relationship with him now and also in a future eternal state. And so he's warning them that that is where you want to come. It's a relationship. It's this abiding in the vine that you want to have. Don't be deceived and get caught into the trappings of religious regulations and rules thinking those will get you to where you want to go. They were never designed to be that way. And so he's talking to the unbeliever, the non-Christian, the one who's not following Jesus saying, if you remain in that state, there is a judgment that would say, I never knew you. And there would be an honoring of your free will decision to stay separated from God for all eternity. There's a third audience, and that audience is probably most of us. The person in Christ, the one who has made that genuine, sincere heart statement to god to say i want you the songs we sang today were so illustrative of that you're the source of my life in this life and the next i need a payment for sin only you can do it i entrust my faith in your ability to do that not mine to give me a new standing a relationship as a son or daughter in your family with those people there us is still a warning there's still a judgment for not taking that privilege for granted, for not having fruit come from that relationship that he's given to us. And it's very clear, and I want to be careful with this, because this could be where the teaching could go awry and you can misunderstand what I'm saying. The Bible talks about two judgments for two different types of people, and they're the Audiences I just described. For those not in Christ, he talks about a great white throne judgment in the future for people that never gave themselves to faith in him. And it would be as in Matthew 25 describes a separating out from those that he said, I knew you come into my kingdom, the sheep. And those that he calls the goats, the ones who he said, I never knew you. You may have done religious things, but I I never knew you, and your heart was never sincere toward me, to where their eternal state would be separated from him. That's not the Christian. The Christian has a judgment that's called the Bema Seat Judgment. And that judgment is not as to whether or not you were in relationship with God, but about what you did with your relationship with God. How did you build upon it and have fruit come from it? Let's look at a passage where he, that is taught by Paul. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you see it? It's clear. We will all come under evaluation. He would invite us to stay under evaluation even now. Because he wants us to see that the precious stones, the silver and gold are the fruits that he would want to reward. But the hay and the stubble and the straw... He's going to do away with because they weren't works in accordance with our privileged position. But the key line there, too, is that yet you will be saved if you're in a relationship. If you've laid the foundation of Jesus Christ, that relationship will never be removed. You'll never be separated from God. Two different judgments depending on which audience you are. There's a fourth angle that I want to speak to, and that's not a when, it's not a why, it's not a who, it's what I call a wow, a wow. It's this idea of repentance, this theme that we talked about early on and is now coming up in everything that he's saying to these people. If you don't repent then, if you don't repent then. We've got to sort out what this idea of repentance means. It's actually a very good term. Too many times in religious circuits it sounds heavy and weighty and damning. And it's not meant to be that way. Repentance means a change of mind, a change of direction, a turning of around. And so it's a good process by which if God is in our life, He constantly would want us to be available to be adjusted, turned around, put in a different path, have our mind tweaked to a new understanding. That's repentance. And being open to that is good Christian practice. It's a route to holiness, to practicing how you're positioned. Repentance has not only a past tense orientation to it, meaning did I ever change my mind in terms of what I believed about my eternity and where God factors into or not. We often speak to that in terms of our day of salvation or experience of fashion. And that's legitimate and good. But there's also a present tense reality to repentance. Am I willing to repent today? Am I willing to let the Holy Spirit in my life and be active such that constantly my directions being altered, changed? That I'm having new thinking that God's in charge of to take me to a deeper experience of being set apart for him. That's repentance. I found a quote that illustrates it well. It says this, Faith and repentance are like Siamese twins. They are virtually tied together. They are two spokes of the same wheel. Repentance is a heart broken for sin and from sin. True repentance has a double aspect. It looks upon things in the past with a weeping eye and upon the future with a watchful eye. If you feel sorrow only because of certain consequences brought about from your sin, this is remorse, not true repentance. If, on the other hand, you are grieved because you also sinned against God and his word, then you are on the right road. Repentance is a turning from sin and returning to the Lord. A changed mind and a changing life is inherent to repentance. Repentance adds nothing to faith, but is rather an integral part of it. And for me, that's a wow, that God gives me that tactic to stay in relationship with him and to be adjusted again and again toward allowing my holiness practice to match up to the position he's given me. And this repentance helps us step into our last point, patience, And I want to start off with a practical story that's happened to me in just the recent years. I work in the marketplace helping people, primarily men, try to work their lives in a way that faith is integrated. Even into their work lives, their business culture, their leadership, their ownership of a business. And to do this in a way that's dynamic and real and tangible to them. And I used to work for a sports ministry called Athletes in Action. And in the transition a few years ago, I had a gentleman that has been a part of helping us in our ministry. And he wanted to understand more about the change, why I was doing it, what it was like. And we sat down and had breakfast and was talking through what it was that I was doing. And I was giving him examples of people that I was seeing grow in ways where their mentality was changing toward their work life being a place of ministry and opportunity to be there as a minister of God, um, intentionally praying about their day, intentionally moving toward people in kindness and love, um, being courageous at times, opening their mouth and talking about God in appropriate settings with people that were curious or interested, all kinds of different ways that it was coming alive for them to live it out. And he listened. And we had a great exchange. And he said, that's great. Sounds like a great fit for you and that you're having a blast doing it. Well, about a week later, he calls me and he says, uh, Ron, I, I, I want to share something with you. And I said, oh, yeah, what's that? I thought maybe he forgot to ask a question or something. And he says, well, our discussion has led me to repentance. And I thought, huh? I, I don't remember anything Us talking about any deep, bad sin or predicament or difficulty in your life. Uh, What what are you talking about? I said, no, no, no. He said, I'm just, I'm repenting. I'm changing my mind about the way I've been utilizing the privilege I have as a business owner. I'm a custom home builder that has employees and contractors that I use on a regular basis. And as you talked that morning about trying to help people be more intentional about how they view each day of their life, including their work life. I realized I don't do that. I'm honest, I'm ethical, I try to be kind, but I I don't really think about how can I be God's ambassador, ambassador, his messenger, day to day, to the people he puts with me. And he said, so I want to change. I've got an idea that I want to throw out to you. I said, what's that? He says, I want to start a interaction with these guys sure i i know that i can trust god to help me in the day to day. but i want to do something even more would you join me he's asking me this in a every other week breakfast that i invite all of my crew to i'll pick up the tab but you lead a faith discussion with these guys you facilitate interaction on learning and the Bible. He said, because I don't, I don't feel equipped to do that quite yet. Maybe someday. But I sense you like doing that. I said, oh yeah, I do. I like doing that stuff. Let's do it. And so for two years, the fruit of his repentance played right before my eyes. I saw these guys come to these breakfasts, and it was a a welcoming environment. They they knew they weren't going to get preached to or shaken down for how they were living their lives per se. But the word of God and the spirit and the atmosphere of the interaction was going to do what it was going to do. And so I saw guys open up the Bible for the first time ever in their lives. I saw guys ask honest questions of false perceptions or hurt that they'd had in their religious activity from times in their past. And we got it all on the table with biscuits and pancakes and bacon. And it was happening. And more fruit came. One of those guys, of the 12 guys that constantly came to these interactions, decided for him, God was asking him to start to attend a church. And he started, and he started serving at that church. Had not gone to church for years. And he would tell us about what's happening in that and how much that was filling him and being meaningful. Another guy decided he wanted to do a missions trip and went to a foreign land and got so caught up in the opportunity of using his skills and the impact that it's had that he left his job and joined that mission. Another guy said, I've got to quit acting this way toward people at work. I've got a very negative spirit and it's dawning on me that this is really not honoring your God. And he changed it. He and God changed it because he asked God to come powerfully into his life. And this was being expressed at the breakfast table week in and week out. Fruit in connection with repentance. It's part of God's patience toward us to continue to stay with us if we stay open to this activity in his life. 2 Peter 3.9 speaks to patience. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, Peter captured the heart of God. He doesn't want the negative consequences from the evaluation to come on our lives. He's long-suffering and patient. wants us all to come to this dynamic of a repentant lifestyle where he's constantly massaging us to a better place in our practice of faith. And there's a writer named Henry Cloud that really captures the essence of this passage by almost creating a formula for how God works in his patience. He calls it grace plus truth plus time. Grace plus truth plus time. as kind of being God's formula for helping us to live this kind of life where we're constantly growing into our holiness that we're to be practicing. First grace, it's in verse 8 right here. The man appealed to the owner. He said, allow me to put fertilizer in. I see grace through the lens of this fertilizer. Fertilizer is meant to be a generous resource that's added to something that's not going the direction it needs to go in terms of its growth and to help it along. It's favor and forgiveness that's not necessarily earned or deserved. We just talked about it and sang about it this morning the song that says, I don't deserve it, I can't earn it, that's grace. It comes as an additive separate from you having to pay for it or go get it. It just gets added. We need grace. God's willing to give grace to us. And we ought to be willing to be giving grace to one another as we practice this as human Christians one to another. It should mark our discipleship to be grace-oriented toward other people as God is with us. That's one dimension of the formula. The second is truth. What's truth? Well, it's in the passage too. The owner is appealed to by the man who says, let me dig around it. Let me dig around it. Truth is the willingness to let God dig below the surface in our life. You can live a surface Christianity. It's not the one he intends for you. He wants to dig down into the roots of some of our beliefs and practices. The stuff that torments us maybe from the past. The stuff we never got straight. The grudges and the resentments that maybe we're still holding on that are blocks to us fully experiencing the fullness that he wants. Dig around it. Truth comes in the form of sound Bible teaching, loving confrontation, intentional discipleship, accountability, all these below the surface, getting to the roots type practices. And then he adds a third component time. Grace plus truth plus time. It's in the passage, too. The passage talks about how this man appeals to the owner of one more year. Give it one more year and see if we can change the direction of this fig tree. It's often said that time heals all things. I disagree. Time alone does not heal all things. Grace plus truth plus time can heal a lot of things. But if we rely on time alone to heal things, I think we actually presume upon God's patience. There's no way around it in this passage. God says there is a time where he will come for evaluation that's full and final. And time is up. It says, but if not, after one year, cut it down. A final story to conclude that I think helps wrap this up. It was very helpful to me, even as a young Christian man in college, I heard this story. And it's fictional, so know that. But it does speak to spiritual truth. The story is about Satan. Gathering together a council of his demons. And he's wanting to do what Satan does. In his evil ploys, he would want to distract us from God. He would not want us to be in a growth posture toward God. He would not want us to know the truths that we're talking about here today. Of his grace and truth being poured into our lives. And available to us. And so he asked these demons, how can we torment the people? And in this council, one man steps up, one demon steps up and says, I got it, we'll tell them, we'll scheme to show them that there is no heaven. No heaven. We'll convince their minds and hearts of that. Because if we can get them to believe that, then this whole idea of judge and judgment, they'll feel like there's really no reward that the Bible talks about to them practicing their holiness to match up to their privileged position of holiness. That'll be a great deception. And the council of demons said, ha ha, pretty good. But there was a second demon that said, no, 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 I got a better one. I got a better one. Let's deceive their minds with the message that there is no hell. If there's no hell, then it's all loose. They can be indifferent. They can be apathetic. They can be rebellious. The whole consequential element of this judge judgment thing will be no factor. That'll be a great deception. And the council of demons said, Huh, that's that's pretty good. But a third demon rushed in and said, No, 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 I got the best one. And the council looked at him and said, What better could you get than those two deceptions? He said, I got it. It's this. We'll train their minds to think that there's no hurry. No hurry. And it's this idea that for us, whether we're in Christ or not in Christ, to believe the lie that God will not does not want to evaluate and come into helping us decide whether we're going to take the direction with him or not, and that we can ah oh, wait till tomorrow uh, I'll give it another month to deal with God on that. I've got time, the repercussions don't seem like they'll really show up in the next five years. This final judgment, who knows when that's going to come anyway. You see the deception? No hurry. And God in his kindness and love would say to us, no, let's do work now. I'll be tender. I'll be gentle. I'll be for your good. And when I do have to be heavy, it's, it's meant as a surgeon with his scalpel, it's to heal you and bring you health and goodness. Trust me. Open yourself to me. May we not be a people that buy into the deception of no hurry, however it is that God is asking us to come and deal with him in evaluation of our own lives. Let's pray. God, we do ask you to help us with whatever place we assess that we're in. If there's folks here that are not in Christ, I pray that you'd help them to really understand the message of your truth and grace that you are the promised one who can forgive sin forever and that by them putting their faith in you for that and not themselves to know that you can remove the consequence of that sin and to put us in relationship with you and the father for all eternity is a great good news may you move them to reach to you for that And for those of us in Christ, I pray that we would have the humility before you to say, yeah, I I do want to live a repentant life, one that I'm constantly willing to go a different direction with God because he's a good master, a kind father, a wise counselor. May you help us trust you with that. And we acknowledge in this passage the story doesn't have an ending. It's left open-ended like you often do in the scriptures. You hang a question there. Will the tree bear fruit in the next year? May your spirit come into our hearts in ways right here today and provoke us with that question of are we allowing you to put fertilizer and dig around in our lives in such a way that we can see fruit coming ahead in areas where maybe we've not allowed you to produce fruit. Search us, O God, and know our heart. Try us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in us and lead us in the everlasting way, we pray, through Jesus. Amen.